Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Timothy Shank is a self-described political junkie. He's also a historian and a postdoctoral fellow here at Washington University in St. Louis. So it's no surprise that he's been paying close attention to this year's presidential election. Shank grew up in a family of mostly Republicans. And when he first got interested in politics, he was really conservative. So during the Republican primaries, he thought he had a pretty good read on what was going to happen. When the election came around, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, like Trump, whatever, it'll come and go. But like Marco's got this or Ted Cruz has this. Like so many other observers from both the right and the left, he was wrong. Trump won the nomination. And Shank, as both a historian and as a political junkie, wanted to understand the backstory that led to his rise. Shank ended up writing an article about the history of Trumpism for The Guardian. In some ways, the topic felt personal. The inspiration for the article, for me, came from just realizing there was a whole world out there that I didn't understand. And that was embarrassing both as someone who thought that he had understood how the American right worked, but also as someone who has just received a PhD in American history um, with a special focus on 20th century and like recent American politics. So this was really just an extended exercise in correcting my own ignorance. To start off, he had a lot of questions. Early on in the race, prominent Republicans and traditional conservative outlets, the type of places that Shank had been paying attention to for years, spoke out against Trump. But in the end, it didn't matter. Were these outlets just that out of touch with average Republicans? And if so, when did that start? To answer these questions, Shank couldn't turn to a history book or an archive. Instead, he started to poke around online. So I was reading a column that Peggy Noonan, who's a writer for The Wall Street Journal, she wrote, and she had come across this website with the somewhat incredible name, uh, Journal of American Greatness. This website only lasted a handful of months. Its authors were anonymous. The note on the homepage right now says that it began to a large extent as an inside joke. But for many people interested in conservative politics, like Peggy Noonan, for the short time it lasted, the Journal of American Greatness was producing some of the most fascinating stuff on the internet. Noonan was over the moon about this website. She said it was intellectually sophisticated, it was exciting, and it was saying things that conservatives needed to hear but hadn't allowed them say, themselves to say for a long time. Naturally, Shank had to go check it out for himself. And it was absolutely fascinating. It was a really smart um, site that said some things that were outrageous that I very much disagreed with, some things I thought were just like straight up offensive, and some things that were like really insightful. This website was pro-Trump. Simply put, the authors agreed with Trump's ideas about what's best for the United States. They believed that government should approach every action with a simple question. Does this help or harm Americans? This line of thinking leads to things like an American-first foreign policy, rejection of free trade, and a desire to erect borders, all ideas that Trump agrees with. And the most fascinating part of the argument for me was showing how these, all of these connected and made for sort of a coherent platform in opposition to what the site called sort of the tenets of the sort of like global elite, uh, sophisticated 1% crew. Notice this argument is against the elite 1% crew, not against Democrats. The Journal of American Greatness suggested that for a very long time, the Republican Party itself has not represented real Republicans. 
The story isn't Republicans versus Democrats in their view. It's the top and bottom versus the middle. So you have elite, fancy university types um, with sort of ample support from capitalists on one side, and then this sort of mass of the underclass. And this is very much like their vocabulary, which is a little bit paranoid, but their story is that like left out of this is sort of the broad base of essentially like white middle America. And perhaps most interesting to a historian like Shank, the authors argued that this split had existed for decades. So Schenck started digging to see if this was true. Where did these ideas actually start? The story he found is complex, a little bizarre, and centered in part on the ideas of two men, James Burnham and Sam Francis. To start, we have to go back to the 1930s. It starts with a man named James Burnham, who's the most unlikely revolutionary of the 20th century. He grew up in the Midwest. His father was a prominent railroad executive. Uh, he landed at Princeton after a sort of cosseted elite childhood, then went off to Oxford, and he managed to parlay uh, some pretty sweet connections into a gig teaching philosophy at NYU, which he lands, I think, in the early 1930s. By this point, it's a Great Depression. He looks around, and suddenly um, this sort of like elite world that he'd just taken for granted. Among other things, when he was at Oxford, he studied under J.R.R. Tolkien, which is crazy. Um, he's like, it's all of a sudden, it seems like what he had studied hadn't prepared him for the world that he was living in now. And so he throws himself into radical politics. This is very, I mean, he's in New York in the 1930s. It's a radical moment and a radical place. He becomes Leon Trotsky's basically like leading deputy in the United States and one of the pioneering intellectuals of the American left. Leon Trotsky, if you haven't heard the name for a while, was a Marxist revolutionary in Russia. Burnham and Trotsky eventually have a falling out. In this process, Burnham writes a book called The Managerial Revolution. And it becomes, just as Burnham was an unlikely revolutionary, this is an exceedingly unlikely bestseller, comes out in 1941. It had just been like designed essentially for Burnham to explain why he was breaking with Trotsky. But surprisingly, it became a huge hit. In 1941, everyone was reading and talking about this book. In it, Burnham describes the rise of a new, powerful class in society, the managers. The future, he said, belonged not to capitalists, but instead... To this group of experts that had sort of silently taken over authority and control from the bourgeoisie who just were able to wield this power because they had access to money. What mattered now was knowledge. Other people had had similar ideas before, but Burnham took it a step further by arguing that this managerial class was literally taking over the world. It wasn't just happening in one country. Essentially, he was saying that the United States, Stalin's Russia, and Hitler, Stalin's Soviet Union, and Hitler's Germany were all developing different variations of this rule by managers. And the only question was, like, which one was going to survive? With the start of the Cold War, Burnham's strong opposition to the Soviet Union led him to begin what Schenck calls a journey to the right. Eventually, he became a founding editor of the National Review, a prominent conservative journal. But Burnham found himself disagreeing with other editors at the Review. The other editors believed that the conservative movement was about defending liberty and freedom on one hand, traditional Christian morals on the other. Burnham had a different view. 
Burnham, by contrast, was much more comfortable thinking about politics as a clash over power. It was about winners and losers. The man in his vision, like the managers had power, and the only question was whether conservatives would be able to like control it or rein it in, bend in their direction, and also win the war against Stalin. And there's, I'm sure that Trump has not read a word of Burnham, but he sort of intuitively he lives in that world where it's like, of course, politics is about it's a clash of interest groups, it's about power relations. It's very New York, uh, sort of New York urban politics vision of how politics works. I think. In the offices of the National Review, Burnham basically loses the fight. He continues to write for the journal, but his ideas about the managerial revolution do not shape the future of the Republican Party. But his ideas don't just disappear. Instead, Schenck found that some years later, they were taken up by the second figure in the story, Samuel Francis. Francis believed in the managerial revolution, but he made some important changes to Burnham's theory where Burnham said this managerial revolution is here to stay, there's nothing we can do about it. Francis says this managerial revolution is here, that's right. Politics is ultimately about power, that's also right. But there's a group that has the capacity to resist this managerial elite. And it is this George Wallace, Joe McCarthy, middle American radical group. And what we need to do is ditch this rhetoric of conservatism, which doesn't speak to the real interests of this group. And be honest that what we're talking about are issues of culture, issues of race, issues of class. They want to be able to rally essentially this American white nationalist vision to mount an assault on the cosmopolitan managerial elite. We've moved up to the 1990s by this point. Later in his life, Francis became known as a racist and a white nationalist way more extreme in his views than any establishment Republicans. But in the mid-1990s, he had the ear of people like Patrick Buchanan, a Republican presidential candidate in both 1992 and 96. And according to Shank, what Francis was saying in these years would sound very familiar to us now in 2016. If you read the stuff that Francis is writing in 1996, it's essentially outlining a platform for Trumpism before Trump is like ever thinking about this. So if these ideas about the radical middle versus the manager elite have been around for decades, from Burnham to Francis to today, why did it take Donald Trump to bring this vision of conservatism to light? Why wasn't it Sam Francis? Schenck believes that, at least in part, the answer goes back to how he found the Journal of American Greatness, the internet. The problem was that you're still like right in the 90s before the internet, before there were the means for like disseminating these ideas. So paleocons could have a journal with maybe 10 or 20,000 subscribers. Now, like Breitbart, you can like gin up a global audience as long as you know how to get the right clicks. I mean, all you need is Twitter in order to become like sort of a significant voice in the public debate. And they really like, thrived on that internet culture. Just earlier this week, Trump went on a Twitter storm against establishment Republicans like Paul Ryan. From the outside, what's going on in the Republican Party can seem like chaos. But as a chapter within this alternate history of the right, it sort of makes sense. Mitt Romney is sort of like that quintessential manager, right? He like made his career as a managerial consultant. Paul Ryan in a very different way, sort of like that managerial like policy elite. Ted Cruz is a sort of a perfect representative of movement conservatism. Trump isn't of that world at all. He's, while he has a lot of money, he's like a master at manipulating the media, he doesn't think of himself as like part of that in crowd in the same way. And that allows him to somehow be like authentically a voice for this movement. So overall, Schenck argues that Trump did not arise out of nowhere. He's not a presidential candidate because 
of reality TV or Twitter or a Republican dislike of Hillary Clinton. Whether or not Trump realizes it, Shank says, he is part of a longer history. What Trump represents is the culmination of essentially like this long guerrilla war against the forces of the conservative establishment that Trump, I, he had just stumbled into and just by the sort of instinct he had for like reaching into this populist rebellion, he was able to play off of it, but the material had been there for a long time. So it's not saying that Trump was inevitable, but it is saying that he was much more than accidental. At the beginning of this episode, Schenck mentioned that learning about this unknown history within the conservative movement felt important to him, personally, as both a scholar and a political junkie. After completing the piece for The Guardian, he still feels like there's much more to learn. The past is this sort of infinite ocean and I have a teacup. And I just want to do the best I can with the material that I have. But especially at a moment like this, where it just seems like so much of what we thought we knew about American politics is up for grabs, maybe just like wrong altogether, that it should provoke some sort of like fundamental rethinking. So that combination of doing something that felt like it was saying something new about contemporary politics, that's always exciting, always fun, but also casting a long, casting the past in a different light. As a scholar, for me, that was the best part. Thank you so much to Tim Shank for joining Hold That Thought. There's a lot more to this story, so I encourage you to go read his long-form piece in The Guardian. It's called The Dark History of Donald Trump's Right-Wing Revolt. For many more ideas to explore, including more from our ongoing series on the 2016 presidential race, please visit holdthatthought.wustl.edu. Thanks for listening.